for a woman who pledged at her coronation to uphold the Protestant religion, the Queen spent a lot of time trying to overcome a division that goes back centuries, the one with the Catholic Church. Two of the most historic efforts came late in her reign, a first-ever state visit by a Pope and then a dramatic trip to the Republic of Ireland. The man behind both events, who's kept his role very quiet over the years, is Francis Campbell. He was a long-time British diplomat and the Queen's ambassador to the Vatican, and now he's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Notre Dame in Australia. The Queen as Princess Elizabeth and as Princess Margaret both visited the Vatican as young princesses. We still haven't had the Second Vatican Council. There was still a lack of rapprochement. There were still tensions in some UK cities, particular Glasgow and Liverpool, and that's setting aside the problems in Northern Ireland that had yet to fully erupt and didn't do so until the late 1960s. But the two young princesses did visit the Vatican. They did visit the Pope. Queen Elizabeth made Darcy Osborne, who'd been the British representative during the time of the Second World War and who was in residence in the Vatican during the war, She made him the Duke of Leeds. So she had a very particular interest in the relationship with the Holy See. And she also knew it as the crown's oldest and first diplomatic relationship from 1479. Why do you think Queen Elizabeth, supreme governor of the Church of England, sworn to protect at her coronation Protestant Britain, saw reconciliation as so important? Because she was a person of faith, Andrew, this was someone for whom her own Christian faith was of paramount importance throughout her reign. She understood the coronation oath. She understood it in a Christian context. She travelled the world. She saw the face of faith in many different aspects. She understood faith in the context of history and culture. This was someone who herself had a daily relationship with the Christian faith. She was a believer, she prayed, and she understood the demand of all Christians around unity and rapprochement. And I think that was a driving force. And she didn't see that that desire for unity or the desire for rapprochement took anything from her particular confession, Mm. but it actually was incumbent upon all Christians and that we shouldn't simply be prisoners of history. How significant was it that the first Pope that she met, now I believe that two predecessors, I think Edward VII and King George V, had also met Popes, but how significant was the first Pope that she met being John XXIII, himself the great reformer? What she saw there And what she heard as well from both the Church of Scotland and from Archbishop Michael Ramsey, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, the opening of the Anglican Centre in Rome, she saw movement occurring. She saw the context of Catholicism and Christianity in a wider tapestry. She also saw developments within the United Kingdom. And really, you know, the rapprochement that was taking place and it had taken place in the 20th century with regards to the Catholic Church in England and Wales and the Catholic Church in Scotland. And I think for her to see somebody like John XXIII, to see what was happening with Vatican II, and to be able to contextualise that in the whole era of Christian unity and to be hearing firsthand from the likes of Michael Ramsey and the various Anglican bishops that were coming through Rome and to see the links between the Anglican Communion and Rome, 
I think this was of something of fundamental importance and something she always wanted to encourage. And she was always a strong advocate for the ecumenical movement. Francis, what was in it for the popes? They knew they weren't going to convert her. What was in it for the Vatican? Again, for the Vatican, there's a number of things to point out, for example, within what was formerly the British Empire, that Catholicism was free as a result of the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829. So in places like Nigeria and the Indian subcontinent, they had already seen the dismantling of what you know would have been referred to as the penal legislation in Ireland and in, in England, that that rapprochement had taken place within the United Kingdom. They also saw a person of faith. They also understood the Queen as a Christian monarch in the Protestant tradition. They understood the coronation. They understood the Christian symbolism and the Christian value and the oaths that she took. So from their perspective, this is one place that they say, you know, thinks in centuries. And of course, they remembered a history that was pre the division. Now, a very significant event for you personally, when you were the British ambassador to the Holy See, was that you were the driving force behind a visit in 2010, I believe, by Pope Benedict XVI. He wasn't the first Pope to visit the UK, but why was this so significant, Francis? It was significant because it was the first visit where the Queen accorded the visit the level of a state visit, which is the highest form of protocol, the highest form of a visit. And she did so because she had been received uh, so many times during her reign in Rome. And this was her way of showing respect and hospitality and reciprocity. When John Paul II visited Britain in 1982, it came right in the midst of the Falklands War. And it was a pastoral visit. When Benedict came, it was one of the first times in the Queen's reign where actually the state visit started in Edinburgh, not in London. And that was because the Queen was holidaying in Balmoral and the Pope wanted to meet the Queen at the very first act of the state visit. So the Pope, instead of flying into London, flew into Edinburgh and the visit of Benedict XVI started there. And of course, Benedict's visit was to beatify John Henry Newman, who's Mm. subsequently been made a saint. And again, that was something that was done in Birmingham, but there was a huge outreach that it was both a visit to the Catholic community, but also it was a visit to the United Kingdom as a country and to celebrate the place of Catholicism and also the place of faith in the public square in the United Kingdom. So the visit involved going from Edinburgh, then into Glasgow, then down to London, and then up to Birmingham for the beatification of John Henry Newman. And if my memory serves me correctly... Didn't the Queen send her husband, Prince Philip, to actually greet Pope Benedict at the airport? I mean, what was the significance of that gesture? That had never happened before in her reign. Normally, it would be a lord or lady-in-waiting that would go to Edinburgh or go to the airport to greet the state visitor. But again, the Queen wanted to show a mark of respect that really a papal visit is not a foreign visit. It's actually touching directly. In Britain's case, 10% of the domestic population identifies Catholic. But there is also the link into the Anglican communion and the link into faith and the presence of, of Catholics in British life. So the Queen sent the Duke of Edinburgh, asked the Duke of Edinburgh to greet the Holy Father at Edinburgh Airport on her behalf and then to bring the Pope to Holyrood House in Edinburgh, which is her official residence in Scotland. 
And again, it was sort of steeped in symbolism and that, you know, throughout the Queen saw this visit as something sui generis. And again, in the Mall in London on the Saturday evening as the Pope drove through, you know, with 220,000 people either side of the Mall with the Union flag and the papal flag on alternate lampposts as the Pope drove up to Hyde Park past the palace. This was just a sort of a contemporary view of the place of Catholicism in modern Britain. Now, Francis, you're quite unique uh, personally in the sense of not only are you or were you the Queen's ambassador at one point to the Holy See, but by virtue of being born in Northern Ireland, you're also a citizen or entitled to be a citizen of the Republic of Ireland. And I'm not telling tales out of school here. Mary McAleese, the former Irish president, has credited you with some back-channel work that gave rise to a very historic visit of the Queen in 2011 to the Republic of Ireland. Why was that so historic? Mary is very kind to credit me, but actually I think that both Mary and the Queen deserve the full credit for that visit because as two, the two heads of state at that time, for the first visit of a monarch in a century to Ireland, the level of rapprochement and the level of healing that occurred during that visit, I think, was profound. I think it will go down in the Queen's reign as probably one of the most iconic visits she performed. Over a four-day period, just the gestures and the language and the tone and the vocabulary, and also recognising that she herself and her own family were victims of violence, that the troubles didn't escape them. I think it was just both a human visit, it was a visit between friends mm. and nobody could have predicted how that visit you know at the start of the four days the Irish authorities were very nervous about the complex history of the relationship how this would go but I think so much of the success of that visit came down to the Queen herself and also having a president yeah. who understood the sensitivities because she herself had been born in Belfast. I don't remember anything explicit as apologies on either side, but what was the sort of implied regret, the implied apologies, the implied apologies from the Crown towards the Republic of Ireland, the implied apology for the murder of Lord Mountbatten in 1979? The state banquet for the Queen took place in Dublin Castle, and until 1922, Dublin Castle was the seat of the Crown's rule in Ireland. To have the state banquet in Dublin Castle, and as the Queen stood and spoke, and she used a phrase which I think the diplomat in me always thinks, if this could be used in every conflict or every area where there is a need for healing, the world would be in a much better place. And she used the following phrase, coming after 800 years of very complex and at times brutal relations between England and Ireland or the Crown in Ireland, she said, with the benefit of historical hindsight, there are some things one would do differently, or perhaps not at all. And the humility in that and the way that that spoke to the population of regret as to what had transpired and what had happened, and then that complemented with the physical gestures of going to the Garden of Remembrance, of going into the main football stadium at Crow Park, where there had been an atrocity in the 1920, going there, bowing her head, expressing regret, those actions, words and actions of somebody who, at the end of, you know, nearly 70 years on the throne, 
has the wisdom and the humility and the faith and the confidence to be able to bring that level of healing, then to hear actually the Sinn Féin leaders responding to that speech. And then a year later, there was the historic handshake between the Queen and Martin McGuinness, who at that time was the Deputy First Minister of, of Northern Ireland and a leading figure in the Republican movement. That level of rapprochement and that level of healing, I think, is is something that will be a real legacy for Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. Just finally, uh, Francis, I know that you had many private conversations with the Queen. I, I, I know that you can't talk about those, but I just wonder how it felt, a child of Northern Ireland, as you were, to end up being the envoy of the Queen to the Vatican. I'm just wondering how that felt for you personally. I remember, you know, when you present your letters of credentials to the Pope and part of the ceremony for Catholics, we had a prohibition on a Catholic being the ambassador, which was lifted in 2005 with the Queen's permission. And I remember part of the ceremony involved going to St. Peter's where you would pray at three tombs as part of the presentation of credentials. And it's reserved for ambassadors who are Catholic. And I remember as I stepped into the basilica, one of the elderly canons whispered to me and said, this is the first time in the history of the new basilica where we are welcoming a Catholic ambassador from your country. And when I thought back of conflict, I thought back of the troubles, I thought back of my days in school. And it sort of came back and I think I sent something I said in my speech at that time is sort of the quote from Heraclitus of, you know, Pantare, everything changes. I could never have envisaged a life where I would be representing the Queen to the Pope. That was not part of my life trajectory because those two worlds in a, in a Northern Ireland context for the first 25 years of my life diverged. You couldn't be both, you had to be one or the other. So I think for me, in a, you know, in that conflict time, looking back at that and looking back and having the privilege of seeing how things can change and age and wisdom tells you that things can change something when you're younger, you don't believe they can. Francis, very good to speak with you. Francis Campbell, he's now the Vice Chancellor of the University of Notre Dame here in Australia. But Francis was the British ambassador to the Holy See. And uh, even though he's coy about acknowledging it, former Irish President Mary McAleese has said that he was also a key person in arranging the historic visit by the Queen to the Republic of Ireland. Thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you, Andrew. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.